Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is journalist Yasmin Alapai Brown talking about freedom of speech in a globalised world. So I just want to talk about the last book I wrote. This is the 12th book I've written. And this one is part of a series that I edit. And the series is called Provocations. And they're beautiful little hardback books like this. And they, they just, they, I get writers to argue in a way that we are not used to, to uh, make us see the issues in a different way because it's so monocultural at the moment in terms of the news, what we're supposed to think. And we've, we've got some fantastic uh, books in the collection. Never look at the set, the publisher's bite back. So, for example, I had Joan Smith write a wonderful book called Down with the Monarchy. We had Kelvin McKenzie write a book for me. Actually, I wrote it and he paid me, um, <laughs> defending migration. So sometimes there are kind of a lot of surprises there. So there's a huge variety of titles. And one of the people I commissioned to write a book is Claire Fox, who apparently now is going to stand as an, uh, to be MEP with Farage and, and them. Couldn't make it up, really. So she's a fundamentalist believer in freedom of speech. Actually, she isn't, though she says she is. And the reason I wrote this book, I had three reasons. One, Claire wrote something in her book, and I was incredibly disturbed. I didn't, didn't agree with much of what she said. And at the book launch, I said, you know, I disagree with every word in this book, but I'm the editor, and here we are. But there was one bit where she is addressing a girl's school, secondary school, and she says to this group of young girls, rape is not necessarily the worst thing that can happen to an individual. You need a sense of proportion. And the school was appalled, the schoolgirls were appalled. We have a crisis you know, at universities, the sexual assault, a lot of young lads not knowing what consent is. And I felt it was incredibly irresponsible to say that. And then there was another reason, which I will read, uh, which actually happened to me. It sort of illustrates something about where we're at. The war of the words can be whipped up in an instant. Let us remember the woeful furore over the Cadbury Easter egg hunt in the spring of 2017. Some mischief makers put it about that the word Easter had been removed from the publicity for the annual children's event. Not so, said Cadbury and the National Trust, who organized the event. They had changed one sentence to attract people of all faiths to the egg hunt. Easter was still there on the National Trust website. Cadbury and the charity were not trying to expunge Christ's foundational story. Even so, anti-PC flames could not be contained. And this is really what happened next. By then, a bogus accusation had more traction than the truth. 
as so often happens. The Archbishop of York, John Sentamu, grimly accused the organisers of spitting on the grave of John Cadbury, founder of the family firm. The family were in fact Quakers, and Quakers do not mark Easter. So the long-dead Mr. Cadbury was not going to be restive in his grave over this manufactured crisis. Theresa May, on her way to trade talks in the Middle East, got involved, condemned the airbrushing of faith from Easter. Who was doing that? Corbyn joined in as well <laughs> and confessed that he was very upset by the way the company had behaved. The subtext, as ever, was cultural protectionism. Real Britain was being blitzed by multiculturalists and Muslims, all of us on a perpetual jihad, and godless white liberals. A parcel arrived for me at home. It contained a smashed Easter egg and a crucifix drawn on a scrappy piece of paper. No address, no name, message understood. Is this even acceptable? Is it even sane that they react like this over an Easter egg? So that was reason number two. But by far, reason number three, I don't know if you've um, you ever saw this story, but in, in the USA, the biggest classified advert site, I think the second biggest, which is called Backpage, which sells old fridges, second-hand cars, all this. One mother, Kibuki Pride, used it to get a, you know, second-hand goods. Then in 2009, her daughter, 13-year-old daughter, disappeared. After nine months of unimaginable agony, her husband suggested that they should look for her on Backpage. Pride said, well, why would I look there? She did, though. It never occurred to me, she said, that children were being bought and sold, too, on the site. She clicked on the adult section, and there she saw her 13-year-old daughter, almost naked, posing invitingly. She had been, they should been snatched by a trafficker, beaten, given drugs, broken, and then sold. They found her eventually and brought her home. Her torturer was imprisoned, but the publishers and editors of Backpage refused to take down the image. Years went by. Several judges concluded that Backpage was not accountable because internet companies have immunity for content posted by third parties. It was only in 2017 that the affected families, because others came in on this after... Uh, the Kibuki story came through. They took out a civil suit against the publishers. And then the millionaire owners were called before a Senate subcommittee. And they were made to close down the adult section. And this is what they said. This is an assault on the First Amendment. We maintain hope for a more robust and unbowed internet in the future. And I thought, actually... This is not acceptable. Freedom of speech is now being weaponized to an extent that we should all worry about. It wasn't just that it happened on the internet, but that the judiciary seemed not to care about these children. And so I thought it was time to write a defense of political correctness, because in my view, anti-political correctness has now gone mad, bad, and lethal. 
I actually do completely value freedom of expression. I lived until I was 23 without either democracy or freedom of expression because I lived in the colonies. And under the British Empire, you neither had the vote nor were you free just to say anything critical of the ruling power. And it was a very, very controlled press. We're talking about recent history here. So when I first came here from Uganda, it was incredible that you could speak freely because after independence, we had an elected black leader who within six months absolutely chopped any freedom to express any political thought. Then there was a military takeover by Idi Amin and the restrictions got even worse. So I completely value freedom of speech and freedom of expression, but it is a dangerous fanaticism to say that there must be no restraint. There's a wonderful line in Coriolanus, which shows Shakespeare was a genius. So this tough, toughest of tough Roman soldiers says in Act 2, Scene 2, when blows have made me stay, I fled from words. And it's such an important little line. And for people who say that in the US in the First Amendment, there is no absolute freedom of speech in America. The First Amendment is not an absolute. In 1952, a Supreme Court judge who had actually been at the hearings in Nuremberg, whose name was Justice Jackson, said this. And this is so pertinent today, where we are today in our country and probably across Europe and certainly in the United States. Abuses of our freedom of expression tear apart a society, brutalize its dominant elements, and persecute, even to extermination, its minorities. This was a Supreme Court judge putting red lines down, even in America. And so I wanted to look at why it was really important to defend PC. And be honest, the book is quite honest about the stupidities, of some PC people, the lack of courage sometimes to say, actually, we did change society. We've made a huge difference. We made the public space civilized. What we think privately is nobody's business. What we say in the privacy of our own homes is nobody's business. But the public space is a shared space. And I certainly think post-Brexit, civil behavior in many, many places has been corroded and we feel it. It used to be all the ugliness was on the web. It's now on our buses, in the tubes. People feel free to say whatever they want to say. And it's not making us happier. It's not making us a, 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 a more cohesive society. And then there is the hypocrisy. I mean, it's astonishing hypocrisies. How many people have read Norman Finkelstein? Yeah, you, you know who he is. He's an academic whose family, you know, had like so many uh, Jewish people who went to America, his family suffered terribly um, under the Nazis and so on. But he has always maintained that criticism of how Jewish people in some circumstances behave and Israel is legitimate and is being made illegitimate. And when he said that the last time he got into trouble, they took away his tenure. DePaul University, he had full tenure. So when people tell me, 
America, land of the free, it isn't. It isn't. There's also, you know, this kind of extraordinary set of double standards. Joe Johnson, when he was Minister of, of Universities, he went on and on and on about how universities should be free, all these snowflakes, these safe spaces. You know, it's a place for free thought, however dangerous. The same minister. And that was also true of Sam Jimay, who, who followed him. The prevent duty falls upon all of us. I'm a part-time professor at Middlesex University. And my God, the responsibilities they have now given academics, even small discussions in the student unions, staff turn up to spy on their, their students and what they're saying. If they're fundraising for Palestine, we are obliged to make sure somebody's there to see. So how does that work? You have the same minister saying, of course you must let free speech and Toby Young and all of these people come and say whatever they wish, but we mustn't allow free debate by Muslim students. The hypocrisy, there were, there were two other points and then I'm going to just read you um, a couple of things. I think more freedom is better than less. I mean, just yesterday, Saudi Arabia beheaded 37 people, including teenagers, for just having a sense of political freedom and going out on demonstrations and talking about it. They beheaded them yesterday. I never want to live in any Muslim country, although I'm a Muslim. I do not want to live in a Muslim state because they have no freedom. So the book is not suggesting that, you know, I, I want to censor everything and shut down open debate. I am saying the central argument is we all have a line and we should be honest about it. The only argument is where that line is drawn and who draws it. And the difference between censorship, which is the politically powerful, using that political power to silence opposition is censorship. That is the definition of censorship. Censorship is to do with power. But when people march and say they don't, you know, they, they object to this, that, and the other, and they are ordinary people who have no other power, that's not censorship. That is their right. You know, I've taken quite a controversial position, for example, on... Um, Salman Rushdie, a writer I absolutely adore. But it's, it's important. It, when, when the satanic verses happened, two things. The fatwa was nothing to do with British Muslims, although some wild ones here then got in, in on the act. But Muslims were marching peacefully in Bradford because their faith mattered to them. At that time, Muslims had the lowest income, the worst housing, the worst education. So when you're right at the bottom of the pile, you turn to God. Your only salvation is God. I, I thought if, if it's okay for Salman Rushdie to write this book, then surely it's okay for those who don't write the book to march against the book, as long as they were not being violent. And I was working at the New Statesman at the time. This is long before the burning of the book. They were marching quietly every weekend, asking for Salman Rushdie to meet them. And I said to the editor, can I go up and do a story about how they're feeling and what they're saying? And he said, we're not interested in that ignorant, but he didn't know I was a Muslim. He hadn't. 
because I'd never said. It was nobody's business. You know, who wants, you know, they're savages, they're ignorant. Why should we cover their story? And it was at that point I said to him, you, do you know you're talking about my mum there? You're talking about me. What do you mean? I said, I'm a Muslim. I've just not made a song and dance about it because I don't think anybody should. It's my private faith. But you've just described an entire group of people who legitimately have protested. So if he had the right to write the book, and I'm not denying him his right, people who didn't like the book and objected to it had the right to object to it. And it's the same now. Otherwise, it's one-sided. What kind of freedom of speech is it that says, well, I can say whatever I want, and you just need to accept it? That's the deal. Well, it's not a deal. It's not going to be accepted. And so I've dealt with these hypocrisies quite a lot in the book. But I'd like to um, read a couple of bits now, and then we can, we can have a discussion. The book's been very well received. I think five years ago it might not have been. I think because so many people, parents, educators, young people, are beginning to worry a lot about what's happening on the web, I think that they're beginning to see that if the unregulated internet traffic is this ugly, this cruel, this chaotic, it's not acceptable. You know, nobody said freedom of speech was freedom to hurt, to wound, to threaten, to disable. And words, as Coriolanus said, disable sometimes more than acts. And I've written this in, in the book. This may be just my own fierce optimism of the will, but I see a shadow of something approaching a transformative moment, or at least an emerging understanding that social responsibility matters as much as individual rights. As with all societal sh uh, shifts, resistors are also regrouping and rebooting. But people can now see that what was on the web is now pouring out into real life. Once you allow this amount of abuse and degradation to happen on the web, as we saw with the back page, you know, it becomes part of our tolerance of the intolerable in real life. And I think a lot more people are beginning to think about that. For all its many flaws and idiocies, B.C. fosters civility between diverse humans and tames the beast within each and every one of us. Without P.C., the social environment becomes coarse and contaminated. The law of the jungle prevails, ensures that only the strongest and cruelest survive. Britain has become edgy, tense, unfair, unequal, scrappy, eruptive, and disjointed. It was a real shock to me to see how many people turn up outside the House of, uh, Houses of Parliament who are absolutely neo-fascists, who one upon a time inhabited the fringes of our society. Now they are emboldened, thousands of them, with to Tommy Robinson et al., to come right to the heart of power. And until recently, the police did nothing. This is not freedom of expression. This is true intimidation. And this is, as Fintan O'Toole, the wonderful Irish writer said, we are in a pre-fascist era and freedom of speech has been weaponized. It's that serious. Let me just read you a, a couple of quotes. I've got a whole section on um, those who love PC and those who hate it. And there's no doubt that PC divides people. 
I've gone into the history of PC in this book. It wasn't just about language, the language is a part of it. It started in Stamford in the 80s when the first black students started arriving in Ivy League universities. They'd never, ever been there before. This was the Reagan-Thatcher age of right-wing politics. And quite rightly, they were shocked that there were no black writers in the canon. And so they didn't, you know, burn the place down or anything, but they did start writing about it in the student newspaper. And they did start objecting. Almost from that instant, right-wing billionaires, the same families who backed Trump, set up think tanks to take on these students, pretending to be objective think tanks. It's really quite scary. And they lied about what the students were doing. And some quite extraordinary stories of how they completely misrepresented what PC was. PC is about language, access, changing the status quo, and equality. It's what everybody who was kept out of the circle of power wanted. And unless we have this constant disruption of, of power, how does anything change? And there are some legitimate arguments that those who hate PC or fear it make, and I've included all their arguments here. But I've also then come down very strongly in favor of PC, and I'm also suggesting that at the moment, there's another PC, another kind of pressure on us coming from the right, populist correctness. So we are forced to say all the time that, you know, immigration is not about racism or all the people who voted uh, for Brexit were the left behind. This is the script we're supposed to follow. That's populist correctness. So it's, we're not free. We have to follow the line. But let me just read you a couple of interesting comments. Prince Charles, this misnamed fashion for what people call political correctness amounts, he says sulkily, to testing everything, every aspect of life, so that people feel intimidated and browbeaten. Yeah, sure. Any questioning of the current fashion usually elicits a vitriolic response, whether it is a wish to teach people the basic principles of English grammar or suggesting that in certain circumstances it may be necessary and sensible to administer a smack to your child. So this was in 1994, said Prince Charles. Now, I bet he wouldn't say it now because he's got grandchildren and those grandchildren are not going to get smacked. Time's moved on. This is PC. We got that one. There is... Um, this guy who used to write for the Sunday Times. Political correctness has become an assault course for employers in a world, now this really speaks to our time, where even a gift of a box of chocolates to a woman colleague can be misconstrued as sexual harassment and Irish jokes are under threat because the Commission for Racial Equality has identified Irish people living in the UK as an ethnic minority enduring unacceptable abuse. Now, there are also some very good quotes, and the one I like the, the most is by Deborah Orr. She's, she's such a deep and good thinker. 
and she said, who really thinks the right to offend is inalienable? Who believes that some hideous error was made when it became untenable to put a sign on the door of your pub saying no Irish, no blacks, no dogs? Is there anyone who thinks the world would be a better place if high levels of homophobia were lauded as a wonderful sign that the right to free speech was being enthusiastically upheld? Free speech does not confer the right to be wrong, mistaken, biased, or merely a doggedly axe-grinding pain in the ass about your pet hates. And that is what I think this book was trying to address. The final part of the book is a manifesto on how to be a good PC person. Do not be overwhelmed by the tidal waves of abuse, fakery, and barney that wash up when political correctness sets off yet another cultural squall. Examine the issue, come to a considered view, and decide whether you want to be PC that moment, and then stick in there. Stand up for what's right and necessary. PC is not a religion. It does not require swearing blind faith to its premises. Be honest, sometimes we are wrong. When you're taking on anti-PC foes, remember to be considerate and use PC language. Always ask your assailants if they think they're entitled to hurt and affront people who, uh, whenever they choose. I do when the time is right, so your freedom of speech gives you the right to hurt, frighten and demean me, does it? Do I have the same right? when, say, it comes to your children and mother? Am I allowed to do the same to them? Use all the brilliant examples of PC actually changing the world. Beware of PC righteousness. Go on PC and anti-PC dates. I sometimes do that. I've got friends who are very anti-PC, so we go out on dates. And it's really good fun because we listen to each other. And sometimes, he, you know, uh, there's one in particular, he convinces me that maybe I've been excessively PC but a lot of the time I try and get him to understand why the kind of anti-PC he professes is not acceptable. In the end, as I said, it is about society because there is such a thing as society and we all have our red lines. It's where that red line is drawn and how we can best be free but care about what the impact of words is. You said you're a Muslim and you wouldn't live in um, a Muslim state. Can I ask you to, if you can, um, and I don't mean to be condescending, no, no. can I, to ask, answer simply why you wouldn't? Because there's no freedom and there's no equality in not one Muslim country. Matter of great shame. Fair enough. And then I would respond to that with, as you say, that there are people like Tommy Robinson who have got, as you stated, you know, yeah, yeah. people in support. Can you not then see why? Good question. One, he gets the support he does. And two, do you not think that it's unfair that he is... I mean, I don't actually agree or believe what he says anyway, but do you not think that it's slightly unfair that he is labelled an Islamophobe, even though in not so many words you have kind of just said the same thing? No, he isn't saying that, though. He never says that. He's not talking about the Islamic countries, the Muslim countries. I'm talking about the, uh, the Muslim nations. I think there's a big difference. We absolutely have to be able to be critical. Okay? Because otherwise none of us can grow and none of us can change. And that this is just a matter of fact, that they are none of them free or equal. A lot of people have said it who are not Tommy Robinson. I wrote a book called Refusing the Veil because I find the veil very problematic. There's a difference between hate and criticism. 
and Tommy Robinson's lot is consumed with hate. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that's different. Uh, you know, do you, I don't want people not to criticize us, but I think there is a, a, an agenda that Robinson has. I mean, you just have to read the stuff. It's not about, I mean, the, the, you know, I think we Muslims are making a lot of mistakes, and I write about this often. I don't think we understand that we are facing an existential threat as big as Jewish people did back then. And we need to be more savvy, and we're not. It's a difficult one. I don't think only Muslims should criticize Muslims. I don't believe that. But that's not the same as saying, you know, you're free to therefore insult us and demean us. Tommy Robinson is a neo-fascist. And so I'm, I work in climate change, and um, the scientific case has been clear for a very long time, yeah. but there have been a lot of um, think tanks and things with agendas and, and the right wing. Uh, tabloid press as well, especially, that has seeded a lot of misinformation. And look how they're being demonised. They demonise the 16-year-old. You know, Toby Young, um, all the specky boys. And she's, you know, I just couldn't believe it. It shows they're scared. And of course they're using this, PC gone mad, PC gone mad. Actually, it's anti-PC that's gone mad. You don't even want to save the planet. I was on with Brendan O'Neill, this libertarian, on Sky News. Uh, four days ago. Oh, this is all middle-class people trying to deny working-class people industrialization and progress. I mean, I'm just looking at him thinking, you know, but it's so difficult because they, they come for you. And now it's, it's the turn of the climate because they've been effective in, in, in um, making their voices heard. That's why PC is important. And I think to have the courage to carry on I've been really impressed. I just want to say 